This is Monster Manual Mash. This is the podcast where we dig into every entry in the fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons Monster Manual. We're going entry by entry. We're looking at every little weird freak they got in this thing. And we're looking at the words that they've written to try to entice you, who is probably a dungeon master, into using the material that they've written for you. We look at how they've written it, what it suggests about an encounter with this monster, what it suggests about the vibe, the monster's vibe, and how to exploit that to maximum effect, because it's not always written very clearly, but there's usually nuggets of gold in here. And we also, on top of all that, we look at the monster's origins in myth, in stories, in various cultures, um, as long as it's written somewhere on the internet for me to find. And that's what we do. I am uh, I'm Chris. And that's Wes. And we are we're and attempting we are trying a new recording program. So hopefully that works well. But we don't even need to record well because the subject matter is one of the most dungeony monsters that they've got. We're talking about the flame skull. Yeah. Get ready for like a lo-fi dungeon punk monster. <laughs> Oh, lowest of the low. This is like, yeah. When you scrape the barrel, <laughs> it's just a bunch of flame skulls come out of it. So what we got here? First paragraph: blazing green flames and and mad echoing laughter follow a disembodied skull as it patrols its demens. Demens? I never know how to pronounce this word. I've never heard it spoken out loud. Demens? I I think. The, wait, demain? Demain? I think it's domain, right? I guess. It's, but it's so close to dom to to uh, domain, like domain. It's just spelled That's like fancily. It's like it's the wilst of <laughs> this word. <laughs> we are looking at how to pronounce this word in English, designating all the land retained and managed by a lord of the manor under the feudal system. How do you go about pronouncing it? Domain. Domain. You do want to stress on the second syllable, on the main syllable. Domain. Pretty straightforward once you know. Domain. And now you know. Focus right back onto the flame skull. It discovers trespassers and it blasts them with fiery rays out of its eye sockets and it shoots. Deadly spells called up from the dark recesses of its memories. So good stuff so far. Easy to follow instructions. Yeah. Um, shoots you with eye rays, dreadful spells, mad echoing laughter, green flame. Yeah. Like you've got visual description, audio description, so you can have it like echoing off the walls before characters even come close to it, which is good uh, foreshadowing get people frightened. The eerie flickering green light is nice. You can have that coming around a corridor and getting people scared. Like I've had players hesitate for, I don't know, it feels like hours before going, turning a corner or like figuring out some plan, you know, before yeah, they open yeah. a door. So lots of good stuff there. All of it, all of the, the sensory experience of it suggests uh, unambiguous danger flickering green flame mad echoing laughter like this isn't going to be good yeah like a burning green skull that's cackling that's yeah. yeah um there's no debating like if you see this you hear this 
even the suggestion of it and then when you're confronted with the actual image of the flying green skull there's no there's very little uh ambiguity it's not like you're going to debate whether or not to talk to this thing or whether it means you harm like it definitely does you're not going to yeah. ask like what does it eat what is its uh like mating rituals yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're in its natural habitat, so maybe we'll just give it some space. <laughs> yeah, you can't trick it with like some food or like wait till it has to go to the bathroom or something. So this is like a computer role-playing game CRPG dungeon monster. Yeah. At first glance, you can get I think you can get kind of deeper with it. Totally. As the description goes on, uh dark spellcasters fashion flame skulls from the remains of dead wizards. So normally when I think like we talked about a lot, uh, I like it when monsters are more singular, when they're like inscrutable, they have their own unique things going on, their own unique lore. But I think this is great. A powerful wizard has to kill lower level wizards to make a flame skull. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like there's there's got to be like this sort of like a chain of like uh, wizards sort of at, at place there, you know? Yeah, and it's, it feeds into the mechanics of magic in the game pretty well because although magic can do anything, really, the way it works in the game, as far as the players are concerned, is that there are a limited number of set spells that produce reliable outcomes. So a wizard is in the business of figuring out a spell that has a reliable outcome. So knowing that like there's a spell that is floating around on the like magic dark web somewhere that you can look up if you've gone this way, if you've gone the route of the like necromancer, you can like find this spell floating around in like the anarchist cookbook of magic. Yeah. That lets you <laughs> open figure up, out how to make or and type yeah. something into the browser and find it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I like this because it 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 works well lore wise and it works well mechanically. Um, and it also works as something you can use for the actual adventure. Like you can have it be uh, an avenue of investigation if there are like low level wizards disappearing or like known graves of low level wizards being robbed or even like high level wizards being robbed. Or like it could be one of those deals with like a Sith or just a generally untrustworthy master and apprentice relationship where the master is just kind of grooming his apprentices. He's going to keep some of them. He's going to cull some of them and turn them into flame skulls. Or like, that's what yeah. he does with uh, unsatisfactory minions. It would make a great uh, cult slash pyramid scheme. <laughs> like, like, uh, like, like that being the sort of like antagonistic force is there's a wizard who's, who's got a bunch of people convinced that they, you know, uh, are, are going to become powerful wizards, but like either he's just, you know getting them killed so we can harvest their skulls to make more flame skulls or he's convincing them like oh i could make you into a flame skull or you could go find some even weaker wizards and make them into flame skulls and then they'll work you know (laughs) like it could be a whole flame skull pyramid the next paragraph is legacy of life a flame skull only dimly recalls former life it might speak with its old voice and recount key events from past life but these are only echoes of its former life The undead transformation allows them access to their magic without the material or somatic components. So it's kind of weird because they can have something of a personality from their old life, but 
in their stat block, they have a really high intelligence, which is to help, I think, boost the effectiveness of their spells. But it makes it a weird conflict between what the paragraph is saying about their personalities and what a high intelligence creature might seem like. And it suggests that you can also have a conversation with them. So they're not purely like machines. They can have a conversation because they have their old voice and they can recount events from their last life and they have a very high intelligence but they can't they're they're not truly like it seems like they're not even sentient necessarily that's a weird like line to to walk it is weird because i'm trying to reconcile like the image in my head i have of a flame skull flickering in like this dark stone dungeon cackling wildly just this like flaming unpredictable skull shooting spells around right Mm -hmm. and that fact that it's like a sentient being that can communicate and like uh, has it like a like, you know like is 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 very intelligent can like solve problems and think creatively whatever intelligence means you know like it, it's hard for me to like put those together unless it's like well becoming a flame skull makes you flame skull makes you completely insane yeah like that's the only way i can sort of get it to get it to make sense yeah and i think um it's like you could use this somehow in an adventure or uh, an encounter, rather, where it's like you have the the flame skull like muttering to itself about its past life, and then maybe that information you could either disregard it entirely and just treat it as a very hostile like dungeon creature, or if you investigate what it's saying and even try to engage with it in conversation and tease out some more detail, like in the thing we were just talking about, where it's like a, an apprentice of the evil necromancer that made it, or a former apprentice, rather. It can tell you details about the interior of the the lair. It can k- tell you about like other other creatures, other ways you can like you just get information to help the players mm-hmm, mm-hmm. somehow. Ways to circumvent a trap, weaknesses, uh, locations of treasure, shit like that, you know. But only if you interact with it. Yeah, and like, and then the tricky part about that is like, it's it's a floating, flaming skull, you know, with glowing yeah. eyes. Like, it's it's yeah, it's, that's one of those. Yeah, it's one of those things. Sometimes when I've I've put stuff like that in a game where it's like, this looks like one thing, but if players investigate, they'll discover all this other shit, and it's like they spend two seconds looking at it, make a snap decision, move on with their lives, and like never even come close to. Yeah what I was hoping would happen. And it's like, well, yeah. it, that's kind of my fault because what else would they expect? Even though I try to tell them outside of the game that there's lots of stuff that they miss because they don't get into it. But it's like, you, you have to, you have to let people stumble into it, even though it hurts when they don't figure it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, they'll spend two hours, uh, uh, trying to navigate a blind corner where there's nothing. <laughs> around the corner yeah exactly you've you've accidentally described something interesting that you didn't mean to or it's like a made-up detail on the fly and now it's taken over the entire thing sometimes i've just like improvised some little details about something uh and it has i've had to like go back and like retcon my own story to like make that important because i i just spent too much time talking about i don't know the soup or whatever in the tavern and now the soup has to be important because i i talked about it a bunch yeah, exactly. Everything you mention, and it's really, it's not uh, like the player's fault, because this, this happens to everyone. You know, it can seem like, oh, my players are so stupid. Why aren't they, like, listening? But it's like, no, they're doing, like, you would do the exact same. You have yeah. no information, and you are holding on to whatever little crumbs fall out of 
the DM's mouth. And then you have to decide if those crumbs are red herrings, if they are deliberately meant to like entice you into a trap, depending on <laughs> the DM style and the yeah. relationship. It's constantly like almost everything I say is treated as like a potential weapon that I'm using against yeah. them. It's like every, every, it's just everything is a Chekhov's gun. Exactly. So if you yeah. like, you really have to, if you're going to use a flame skull as like an avenue of investigation or like include little tidbits of information you can get from the flame skull, you really have to be like, I think you need to telegraph it a little bit or you need yeah. to set it up ahead of time so that a smart player can put things together and be like, yeah. oh, so we know this guy used to be an apprentice of this creature and we know maybe they can learn ahead of time that flame skulls can talk about their former lives. Find a journal next to like uh, some kind of writing utensil, you know, like a fountain pen and you can tell that the yeah. fountain by bite marks on it that it's been like held by teeth to like hold it in place to write and there's like singes Ooh, on the paper right and then you see the flame skulls like oh so if you're writing by holding something in your teeth and burning the edges while you were writing it could be this guy hey let's talk to him and then yeah then you see him walking or flying around with like a pen in his mouth or something yeah yeah <laughs> yeah to really hammer it <laughs> like yeah so that, that's i think that's a great idea um because I also think, like, as much as these are just your basic, this is like a very basic, if you wanted to be, dungeon opponent. I think it, the simplicity of the setup of it is, like, very rich and could provide, like, a really good hook in a dungeon, like a really good uh, hinge for a lot of action. But I think in order to spice it up a bit more, you need to consider give, giving the Flame Skull uh, more spells to reflect the variety of wizards they could come from, especially if you're going to have more than one in a dungeon. But having just the one, if you only have it be one, that's okay. They're only, uh, they're only CR4, so they're relatively low level, but they have uh, Fireball, which is yeah. potentially lethal to a group of players that on paper shouldn't have a problem with a CR4. Which is this is something I suspected, and then I looked it up, and the hard the harder core nerds verified it. It can possibly wipe out like a tenth level group or something like that, depending on their makeup, <laughs> or like could seriously cause a problem. It only has the one fireball, but all of its other spells are kind of like damage, high damage spells, and it has a lot of resistances. It's kind of hard to to kill, and it's maneuverable. And if it runs out of spells, it can just shoot you with lasers or fires out of its eyes. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think maybe keep that idea, but also maybe in order to give it more of a, if you wanted to like suggest more of the personality of the person that became the flame skull, you can like learn something about what kind of wizard they were. And then it's this flame skull has its like favorite spells ready to go or something. But honestly, if you're going to fight it, it's going to last like three rounds or something on average. So it's not that important, I guess. The next paragraph is eternally bound. Intelligent and vigilant, they serve their creators by guarding treasures, persons of interest, passages, etc., yada yada. It obeys commands given to it when created and follows them to the letter. Its creator must take care to craft their instructions. Uh, yeah. So this seems like um, you could do two things with this. You could just make it be a very effective like dungeon sentry or guardian, or you could make it so that a, a an inexperienced necromancer made a flame skull and gave it kind of shitty instructions 
<laughs> now that the, that the players can somehow like w- uh, wiggle their way through actually fighting it little loopholes yes yeah it reminds me um just having like it have to be specific instructions like that it reminds me of this episode of x-files i forget most of it but it ends up with there's a genie and Mulder uh, has to like make a, a wish for the genie to like uh, fix the problem, but there's always an ironic twist, and so he where it's page after page after page of like legalese like wish language covering all of his possible bases with the wish to make sure that like to to cover any possible ironic twists. Yeah, um, and I just feel like if whenever you have a creature, it's like okay, it follows the instructions to the letter. You run into all kinds of like iRobot, three laws of robotics problems. <laughs> yeah which this is basically because it's it's an automaton yeah. created to serve a will so yeah there's lots of fun in that i was reading one report of a group of players that um so the flame skull was instructed to guard an object but they cast a spell that like hid the object from the flame skull a barrier went in front of it or something and the skull didn't know why so it became non-hostile because <laughs> it couldn't see the object and it was freaking out trying to find it and like half the players were like talking with it and coaxing it and like trying to be gentle with it and the other half were like secretly stealing it yeah so if there's like this big evil wizard who's got like a serious you know uh layer evil layer operation going on um and has a bunch of flame skulls sort of acting as like sentries you could have a situation where like um maybe you could intercept the specific orders like if they're written orders and it, it could be sort of like a sort of subterfuge uh like sneaky kind of uh you know, a thing to have to do is like, okay, well, we can't just fight all the flame skulls because I don't know, maybe there's like a separate corridor where there's like little slots the flame skulls can shoot their fireballs through, but they've got their own little network of hallways to go through, so you can't really get them directly. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's like a very good security system. All these like crazy intelligent skulls, but they got to get orders, and you can intercept them, and maybe you could like make a safe path for you to go or somehow cause the whole thing to backfire i don't know there's there's a lot of there's a lot you can do with like they have to follow orders that that whole thing yeah knowing knowing the orders that they have the eldritch rejuvenations a shattered flame skull regenerates unless the remains are splashed with holy water or have dispel magic cast on it if it can no longer fulfill its purpose it is beholden to no one and becomes autonomous if they become autonomous you have to ask like what does it want? Does it want to obey the rules and it's it's like lost without them? Or does it hold on to some motivation of its past life? Are they like a demon or devil that's bound to a summoner? Or are they more oh, man. neurotically attached? Yeah, what if they try to go home and it's like a whole uh, like RoboCop situation? <laughs> the flaming skull tries to go home to his wife and children. <laughs> the quest is you've got to you you just got to like help the flaming skull like sort of accept their fate and get closure. <laughs> yeah, what if they don't know that they are a flaming skull? Oh yeah, you know they're trapped in their own illusion world, and they're like, "Honey, I'm home." And then you have to try to help this like poor creature like accept its new life. I love it. <laughs> it becomes like Kung Fu, the adventure continues or something, where it's just like this wandering yeah. flame skull travels the earth and tries to right wrongs or something. 
You could also decide that a, a flame skull that is no longer able to fulfill its purpose, like regains its memories or something. If you wanted to like explore that weird avenue. Yeah. And what happens if you give it the rest of his skeleton, you know? Oh, yeah. I just watched um, Baron Munchausen. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but there's a great section where Robin Williams plays the like king of imagination and he's just this disembodied head who's flying around uh creating and maintaining the world the universe or he's the king of the moon actually but the idea he's just sort of this like king of imagination his headless body enters the room and tries to capture him and put him on his head and while the the head only wants to deal with matters of the universe once he's on the body all the body wants to do and is his his makeup changes so that he's like flushed. He looks like a, a, an eggplant. So his head just gets so full of blood suddenly. And all he wants to do is like tickle his wife's feet, tickle the queen's feet, <laughs> which is like a silly euphemism for uh, some kind of moon sex, I think. That's all he wants to do. So he's like stuck in the realm of the body and sensuality. And there's no thoughts. There's no like planning. There's no bigger picture and then he's relieved when like the head is severed again and the head is uh like relieved and grateful to be away from the body forever that's very neoplatonic like uh like the philosophy like there's the, the plotinus he had the he's like kind of the whole idea of like oh like the mind and like truth and like like facts in the universe like that's what's actually really good and anything physical or bodily is bad and that was like really influential to early you know, theology, Christian theology and stuff, but like Plotinus, and he, he was this philosopher, and then he had this idea that you had to strike the cosmic pose. Like, there's literally just like a bodily position you could put yourself in, and that would put you in harmony with the universe and like make you forget you had a body <laughs> so that you could uh, just focus on purely thinking about uh, abstract goodness. Um, what is that position? Oh, well, I, that's the mist. I think, I think the idea was. Because he was also. Are you in that? Are you in it right now? I'm trying. Uh, I, it's <laughs> the, the various. They're, they're not working. But I think the sort of idea and like he's regarded as a philosopher now. But like really, he was like kind of a cult leader. I think because I think the whole idea was that if you if you actually figured out the position, you would just like dissolve and like sublimate and like become like a like a like a forest ghost basically. <laughs> you know, uh, you would your your body would disappear if you became enlightened. Um, and part of that was just like putting your body in the right position to do that. And so if you were headless and you could remain headless without dying, um, you, you, you probably wouldn't have to worry about putting your body in the right position. You could just focus on, <laughs> focus on the moon stuff, you know? Yeah. There's a, in the forgotten realms, there's a very important book called the circle of skulls which is the last of the uh what is this part of a series of books circle of skulls it's the sixth and final novel in the water deep series by james p davis it concerns nine of the circle were, were originally wizards and clerics of mistra the nine entered into a pact with asmodeus which is not good they offered to undertake a ritual known as the First Flensing, which would extend a formal invitation to Asmodeus to enter Waterdeep. So they're basically asking Satan to come in to water to like a big major city. 
Satan goes to New York. Satan takes New York, yeah. basically. Yeah. In exchange, the wizards would receive the gift of immortality. The wizards reneged on the deal and were changed into their current form and bound to a location in Farah's Alley in Waterdeep. For many years, the circle was merely a local curiosity. So it's a literal circle of flame skulls that would occasionally materialize and shoot flames at passersby, but they rarely did any damage. That's a quote. <laughs> I love like, that. <laughs> yeah. Which sounds like a uh, a city's official report indicating why they didn't do anything about the f- the circle of skulls because they yeah. really they rarely do any real damage. <laughs> More of an attraction. So that's I love that though that it's, accidentally yeah. turn themselves into flame skulls, possibly by getting yeah. into the correct position, <laughs> striking the cosmic pose to bring the devil to New York. Yeah. Something else about the uh, Eldritch Rejuvenations. They will come back in an hour in the stat block. It it goes into more specific. So if you don't splash it with holy water or cast a spell magic on it, it comes back, which is something that you should use at least once because most people aren't going to think anything of an enemy after it's been defeated, downed, yeah. killed, whatever you want to describe it. So then you have them uh, have to come back. You put the, You put this thing in like a corridor that they have to travel through again or somewhere like that. And then that's that's another that's some more juice you get out of this, right? Yeah. And then further, you can even make it more annoying because they don't necessarily know what will make it finally go away. They might think it'll rejuvenate forever. And this is something we've probably talked about before, where you have to decide if you want something to be discoverable through merely a skill check, like an arcana check or a knowledge check. Or if you need this to be discoverable within the game itself, and then they can discover it or not, depending on their actions. Yeah, it is. It is sometimes tricky when someone's like, "Can I roll a religion check to see if I already know how to deal with this?" You know, mm-hmm. which is fine. But yeah, you run into the the problem of like character. People build their characters a certain way, or in order to do these kinds of things. And if you make it out of their reach every time, then it's uh, frustrating for them. But at the same time, you have to maintain some level of um, wonder, some level of like unpredictability in the world. It's tough. Yeah. So I don't know what my particular advice would be, but I was reading uh, there are a few reports of people using flame skulls where they, the players never figured out how to defeat it. And it became like the focus of several sessions. <laughs> Just constantly being stalked by this flame skull that won't go away. Yeah, like they thought they had got rid of it and then it came back and they killed it again and they put it in a bag of holding and they took it out to examine it later and it came back again. It was on a uh, it was on like a pirate ship and they threw it overboard and they returned inadvertently. They came back to that same spot like a few sessions later and it came back in the middle of another fight. So I think you should include. I love it. Yeah, I think that's great. I think you should yeah, include yeah. instructions somewhere, but don't necessarily shove it in people's faces because then it's just like you didn't, then you're just hand feeding them. Yeah, I do like a sort of like it follows type of situation where like you can move faster than flame skull you can get really far away from it after killing it but like one of these days that flame skull is gonna catch up to you and (laughs) oh just every once in a while you hit a fireball out of nowhere (laughs) you know yeah because it it does make noise sometimes it lasts maniacally and it is a flaming skull so it's not exactly the the most incognito thing out there but it is small 
And if it's intelligent and it's ordered to kill you, it's going to do that yeah. if it can. And it's, it's intelligent enough. Maybe this is where the intelligence comes into play. It like knows how to execute its mandate intelligently. So it knows that maybe a full frontal assault on a person who's like in a tavern or something is going to get a lot of attention and they might give the person a chance to escape. But if they're sneaky somehow, I don't know how a flaming skull can be sneaky, but they can try. They can somehow, maybe there's like a bonfire and it can hide in the fire or something. I don't know. I mean, I can imagine it being um, intelligence in like a, in like a T-1000 from Terminator 2 type of way. Right. Where yeah. It's like, yeah, it's not like um, like it can it can it can solve problems to like accomplish its goal, but like it's not like a guy you can hang out with unless it's trying to like do something, you know. Like it, mm-hmm. it can find creative ways to solve its problems, but it's this was like some 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 weirdness there, you know. Yeah, it's still neurotically beholden to the the order. And, like, cannot help but, like, tackle maniacally when they think they got you, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing. It's like they can't not tackle when they think they got you. Yeah. And maybe it even hurts to laugh or something. Like, they just can't help it. The the uh, There's one more paragraph that we skipped, but it is kind of self-explanatory. Wreathed in flames, the fire around the skull burns continuously, and it focuses this fire to shoot it through its eyes. Not much more I can say about that, except that maybe... If you wanted to, you could change the variety of energy that the skull is wreathed in, in a typical D&D design way. Yeah, to like maybe either the kind of wizard they were in life or the kind of wizard that like made them or their environment or something. Yeah. Yeah. Easiest yeah. thing in the world. Change it to lightning, yeah. cold, whatever. But there's just something uh, classic about the flaming skull. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. mentioning of in the forgotten realms lore about flame skulls that whenever they got the opportunity wizards and priests and alchemists would study flame skulls to determine how to create them or copy their powers or to identify the unique properties of their flames though with little to no success due to their great age flame skulls were apt to possess old and little known lore and historical secrets so these are two other interesting angles you could take with it where there are like 
it's not just a obstacle to get through. It could be the objective of an adventure in itself where you have to capture one mm-hmm. because it knows a lot of stuff or people want to like mess around with his cool fire. Yeah. Oh, wow. You could cause a lot of chaos with a bag of holding full of flame skulls. <laughs> I think you could cause a lot of chaos with a bag of holding with almost anything in it. Anything. Yeah, I guess it works. <laughs> Like as as like the kind of ridiculous creative like uh, tools of destruction that D and D players so often come up with. Uh, I think like a, a bag of holding full of things works best with undead because they're not going to run out of air in there because there's specific running out of air oh, yeah. mechanic bag right. of holding. Right, for sure. Uh, but it's like, oh man, we gotta cause a distraction to, so that we can steal the thing, you know? Uh, so if you just like whip a bag of a uh, <laughs> the bag of holding full of flame skulls into the guards barracks or whatever you know yeah but harvesting all would be the hard part yeah that's a that's a whole campaign by itself unless you just come across it as like the the loot of a previous adventure oh like you get you found a bag of holding and you you can use it but you got to deal with the fact that it's full of flame skulls before before using it as a regular <laughs> bag of holding <laughs> That's nefarious. I like that one. I have, um, there's a blogger. The blog is called Dungeon Solvers, and it suggests five Flame Skull plot hooks that I'm going to read that I think are all really good um, elaborations on things we've already mentioned and a, a few novel ideas. So the first is Strange Grave Robbers. Grave Robbers are a commonality in these parts. Bodies are buried with all sorts of valuable jewelries and coins, but a recent spree of grave robbery has coincided as is taking place it's worded really weirdly here i'm trying to but not only is the treasure missing but so are the heads of the dead second one is a dangerous specimen the necromancy professor at the wizard college is looking for a flame skull specimen to use as a demonstration in their lessons find one and bring it to them before it can fully rejuvenate so there's like a classic fetch and retrieve mission has a necromancy professor, which I'm uh, not a huge fan of because that seems like in an immoral world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Depending on what the state of souls are or what's going on, but that's okay. I'm I'm fine with necromancy professors as long as we all realize that they're evil, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. There's no, there's no ethical necromancy under capitalism. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. It's like the equivalent of like, I don't know what you go to school to, I guess, I guess business, but like whatever you do to become, I don't know, a hedge fund manager, right? I, I guess it's uh, already be rich and get an internship, but like, I don't know, whatever that is, you know, the equivalent of that. Yeah. Next one is the the Haunted Sepulchre. The family of magic users, uh, their crypt has been tainted by dark magic. Rumors speak of chittering, flaming skulls patrolling the ground after the sun sets. So there you lead with the flame skulls as the uh, the hook. But really, I don't know. I think you would need more. I think a lot of my players would just be like, well, I'm going to stay away from that place then. Mm-hmm. Number four, office hours. An inexperienced, possibly evil necromancer is looking for some help. They tried to use a few flame skulls to assault a bank, but were woefully unsuccessful. The flame skulls flew off after they received their instructions, leading the necromancer to get arrested by the city guard. They're looking for a tutor to level up their nefarious plans. I don't know about the tutor angle on that. It's kind of weird, but the uh, <laughs> dealing with like wayward flame skulls that are, like have a bunch of money in their in their mouths but don't know what to do with it could be something. And then finally, a charred corpse. You open the door to the room to see a trio of flame skulls hovering around a charred corpse. 
of what was once a powerful wizard. They seem enamored by the strange necklace they're wearing, as if they recognize the symbol. So there you have a good example of using their previous lives, memories, and also maybe they've just been freed of their burden that they don't have to carry out anymore. Yeah. I was just checking out uh, the suggestions in the book, uh, The Monsters Know What They're Doing, mm-hmm. by Demon for Flame Skulls. And um, it's it's more or less like pretty much it's like a very mechanical sort of thing. Like we touched on earlier, they follow their orders and everything. But it sort of makes the case here that the way to interpret them being intelligent is they. And I guess you could, you, you could do this with like a lot of D&D monsters, too. But because they're intelligent, you can use your. Um, knowledge of the game as a dm to like fight more intelligently like attack the healers first and uh like target the clerics and the paladins before someone you know like uh instead of just like because it was goblins you just charge the goblins in and then when the goblins start losing have the goblins start running away when they start losing they're not necessarily or what or if it's just like some wild animals or something like something that's not going to come up with a plan but like the the sort of intelligence of the flame skulls would be like no, they know how to strategically do this fight right now. Yeah, That's, and they're not afraid in the same yeah. way that something yeah. else would be. They're not gonna, and they're 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 gonna fight to the death, like because they they know they can come back, and they're uh you know uh, you know uh, 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 at working under the orders of like uh, some some necromancer or whatever. But like they aren't going to just like go into like a losing situation. Like they're gonna they're gonna be very like art of war about it. They're gonna try to like make sure they can win and that's the way the intelligence comes in yeah that makes sense yeah sometimes we overthink things yeah <laughs> flame skulls have been around since at least second edition it back then um the design hasn't changed at all but back then you could make one from any dead humanoid and only specially enchanted ones could cast spells and then in third they changed it to be that only dead spellcasters could be turned into flame skulls. And then fourth, they introduced the idea of them being ancient and knowing really old lore. And they also had a version which fourth edition is notorious for, where they just create variants that aren't any different, really. They just are more dangerous mechanically. Yeah. Which got me thinking about using a uh, like a giant's head as a flame skull to like terrorize a town. Oh yeah, you can use all kinds of skulls. Just big heads, you know? Yeah, big heads. Big heads are scary. Yeah, Andros from uh from Star Fox. Um what's that movie? Zardoz? Yeah. <laughs> the Witch from Spirited Away. The Witch from Spirited Away? Absolutely, yeah. You can yeah, old tiny skulls be like Army of Darkness. You can just change it up with uh scaling. But I I don't know. I like the big head. It's yeah. more charming. And then 5th edition came up with the idea of the slaves to the word of their masters and the uh, the lesser influence of their past lives. But before, they were actually more, they were still servants of whoever created them, but they weren't, like, so slavish. And then 5th edition hammered in the slavishness. So if you wanted a more, like, curmudgeonly, maybe, uh, like, an unwilling servant with, like, like an attitude dare I say, sarcastic flaming skull. There's precedent in the history. That's, um, he's not, he's not a, a flaming skull because he's not on fire, but that's one of the, uh, in the game, Planescape Torment, 
which is is in the it's in sigil it's in like the planescape setting um the, like the first companion you get in your party after you start the game is mort who's like a, a just a floating skull who's very sarcastic and you can talk to and like he, he can oh, barely combat but he's just like a floating sarcastic skull that uh you can't die he can't die so you're your buddies but he's uh he's just there and he doesn't know why he's why he's a he's a floating skull <laughs> but he's got a good attitude about it right yeah i think this is a classic trope uh, a classic kind of character, the ancient servant uh, beholden to uncaring masters. It's like uh, uh, the paranoid android. What's his name? Marvin. Marvin. Yeah. And there's one in like Knights of the Old Republic comes to mind, but like HK-47 or whatever his name is. <laughs> so what are these? I'm going to get into like, what, what is a flaming skull? Like, what's going on? Why is it everywhere? Why is it on every motorcycle? What is like metal militia stickers and yeah, like... I because it it seems like such like a I it's it's it seems like just such like an elemental sort of like thing in like the human mind, right? Is like well, I mean mm. skulls, like death, cool, you know, hardcore, and what makes stuff better, fire, like it, it's so it's sort of like I can see how it just it could that. Uh, like same kind of image could convergently evolve all over the place, but like you put those two things together, there's something to it, you know. There the flaming is. Skull. It's like kind of, it's kind of childish on one hand, like it's so primitive that it's silly and kind of meaningless, but it's also so ubiquitous that it's like you can't deny that it means something. Yeah, yeah. So usually, I think at its most basic, you can look at Ghost Rider. <laughs> yeah to get a, a sense of what it is. And what you have is a spirit of vengeance who is a sort of tool or servant of hell, whose job it is to confront evildoers with their own evil and make them feel really bad so that when they die, they go to hell extra bad. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I think Ghost Rider never really took off is that there's it's like uh, the lore of it. It's so particular and moralistic that it doesn't really open itself up to the greater world. Yeah, it's sort of like it kind of like, I don't know, that 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 sort of uh, kind of like cosmology with, with hell. Like it always seemed like Ghost Rider was like almost it was almost sort of like hell was like a prison and ghost rider was a cop, you know? And it was like, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, get the bad guys. No, the devil's cool. Cause he punishes bad guys. The devil's not bad, you know, but like the devil's also bad. You like, it, it, I don't know. I always get kind of confused with like the, the moral cosmology of it. Yeah. And I think that's explored in the way that like he tries to whoever whoever the spirit of vengeance is possessing often wrestles with their role. Yeah. Where they're like punishing evildoers by inflicting them with the spirit of vengeance. But at the same time, they're working for Satan. Yeah. Who they're also opposed to. So they have to ride this this line and try to figure out how to operate independently, which now that we're talking about that, it makes actually a lot of sense, I think, because the whole people that have a lot of flaming skull imagery or even like the death's head, like the punisher symbol. Yeah. These are people, um, really it's like, and even the cops do this. You mentioned he's a ghost rider is like a hell cop. <laughs> a lot of cops, uh, use the punisher symbol, even though the punisher is a vigilante. 
Yeah, um, yeah. And so it, it's, there's this weird like spirit of independence, and uh, even though these people are like the authority, they like to pretend that they are somehow above the limitations of their own rules or something. Mm-hmm. There's a really good. Uh, we, I think we talked about this in the Demi Lich episode, the the Death's Head of the of the Punisher. Um, there's a really good graphic essay by an artist named Nick Powell, yes, called yeah. About Face that he wrote and drew. I think in like 2017 or something like that. Uh, that is a really great primer on how the Death's Head and especially Punisher in particular became the symbol of like kind of right wing pro military groups yeah 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 no it is it's it's a really good essay on that yeah and so i'm gonna it, i'm gonna pump that again check that out what were you gonna say oh and just like the idea of like um like sort of um what's what's the word i'm looking for like a le- legitimized vigilanteism like that's kind of the the sort of fantasy of it it's like oh, i'm just i i'm gonna be the one that goes out and does the thing but like you can't just do that but it's like no you're special you can do it you know yeah, like the the skull itself is like a it's a symbol of power and a symbol of the the power of death in particular. Yeah. So when like you SS. when you yeah, the we'll get to the SS. I think I but I think I talked about all the SS. Emily is co-hosting with me from a distance. Uh it's like when you when you're using skull imagery, it's not attached to any ideology. It's kind of like there's, there are, as far as I know, aren't any religions where skulls by themselves are meaningful. They're just sort of this universal symbol of death, personified and confronted very simply. And yeah. I think when you take on that as your image, you are saying that, like, I hold the power of violence, of life and death, but are beholden to no one. That's why it was like a, like a pirate symbol. Yeah. The, the Jolly Roger in various styles. Which is not to say that like specific skull, you know, icons don't don't have uh like um uh particular meaning in, in different religions. But like skulls in general don't yeah. Yeah, like for for sure. But there's something there's there's a universality about it that yeah. makes it open to used by anyone and it still works just the same yeah yeah monster mash interruption yep that's right i am interrupting my own podcast because before i went to publish this but after we had already recorded it we had learned some new things about the flame skull well yeah First of all, I probably went on a little too long about the death's head image thing and the Punisher and all that, because that's all fine. That's all good. But I already went on about it in the Demulich episode, and it was probably a bit more relevant there. I gave it too much relevance in this episode because I didn't know this piece of information. I didn't know this topic existed. So I want to thank listener Jeff LaSala for bringing to my attention the existence of the way more specifically relevant topic of the screaming skull genre of gothic horror, of gothic ghost stories. This information comes by way of a very good podcast called Monster Talk. Check that out if monsters beyond D&D are interesting to you. And also if you like to hear from scientists who are dealing with disproving 
usually the existence of these real-life monsters. The Screaming Skull is a kind of micro-genre of gothic horror, and it is also based on real-world legends. Most famously, a place called Bettiscombe Manor. It is also known as the House of the Screaming Skull in England, somewhere in England. Don't ask me where. Due to a legend dating from the 19th century. The Pinney family had been living in the Caribbean, but they returned to their family home at Bettiscombe Manor in 1830, but they brought with them some of their black slaves. While in his master's service, one of the servants was taken seriously ill with a suspected case of tuberculosis. As he lay dying, the servant swore that he would never rest until his body was returned to his homeland, but when he died, Pinney refused to pay for such an expensive burial and instead had the body interred in the grounds of St. Stephen's Church Cemetery. After the burial, ill fortune plagued the village for many months, and screams and crying were heard coming from the cemetery. Other disturbances were reported from the manor house, such as windows rattling and doors slamming of their own accord. The villagers went to the manor to seek advice. The body of the servant was exhumed and the body taken to the manor house for some reason. In the process of time, the skeleton has long since vanished, except for the skull, where it has remained in the house for centuries. And people claim they can still hear it screaming because they don't send it back to Jamaica still. It's kind of like the uh, British Museum problem all over again, except with a human head. There are lots of other screaming skull stories. Um, one that I find interesting is Screaming Skull of Tunstead Farm. At a farmhouse in Dorsetshire at the present time is carefully preserved a human skull which has been there for a period long antecedent to the present tenancy. The peculiar superstition attaching to it is that if it be brought out of the house, the house itself would rock to its foundations, while the person by whom such an act of desecration was committed would certainly die within the year. So this is the opposite problem. This is a skull that does not want to be moved and lets you know. The, this skull brings good luck and protection to the farm where it is stored. There is a 19th century travelogue called the Perambulations of Barney the Irishman, wherein the titular Barney observes, There are many strange stories in Tunstead concerning a skull in the possession of Mr. John Bramwell, who holds it in great veneration, declaring that it prevents the house and farm from being robbed and that he would sooner part with the best cow he has than with the skull. Sitting on the farmhouse windowsill, the Tunstead skull, known as Dicky, mostly looked out over the farmlands, making sure nothing was amiss, until the railway company tried to build a new track through a part of the Tunstead land. According to locals at the time, each day the company would start building the track, and each night Dicky would undo their work. In 1863, a magazine called The Panorama reported, It was the steadfast belief in the district that the ghost would undo, at the Combs Embankment, the work which had occupied many men during the day, and that Dickey was, was only satisfied at last by an interview with the engineer at which he was promised a free passage over the line forever. So that's cute. That's an appeasement strategy. Since I'm just inserting all this here and I'm doing this solo, I'm trying to be succinct, but I cannot understate how central this story is to the Flame Skull monster of D&D. I'm sorry I missed it. Thanks again to Jeff. But this is actually, this is the kernel from which 
the popcorn of the flame skull bursts into flames. This is it. More than anything else we talk about. I got I got talking. I got to talking again. So in the first legend of Betis Kilmander, the skull belongs to a servant who wants to go back to Jamaica, but his master is too cheap to do it. So now the guilt, the pain of this person is manifest as a spooky ghost skull and noises coming from the grave that the whole village hears. So now the whole village is is privy to the guilt, the wrongdoings of this one house, and ill will befall them evermore until it is laid to rest. Like a ghost story, except this subtype of ghost story has a physical focus in, in the skull, which is no greater no greater object to symbolize death and accusation because the skull can actually look at you and you look back into it. They place it inside the skull or they place it in the manner where you can see it, which is interesting. They don't hide it. They can't hide it is the problem. It's the elephant in the room. Everyone knows it's there, but you can't do anything about it. It's unprocessed familial guilt. The skull was wronged. I mean, they could send it back, but nobody does. Why? Because they're too British, I think. They'd have to admit something was wrong. And if you combine this with the other legend, where the skull sits watch and protects its owner's land, now we've got a flame skull, a magically animated skull doomed to protect the property of its master against its own will. And just like guilt, the flame skull won't go away just by hitting it. The rights must be performed, the wrongs must be righted, or something. Something has to be done besides attacking it the flame skull in the game will come back um most famously the flame the screaming skull is fictionally rendered well famously as far as short stories from the 19th or 18th century can be the short story the screaming skull by f marion crawford is synopsized thusly it is told in real time by the skull's would-be victim, a man responsible for its demise. The narrator is a retired sea captain, bit of a pirate. He describes the actions, including his guests' reactions. He says things like, you don't need to look so nervous. It's only the sound of the tide going out, not a scream. Yes, you can have more to drink. I'll pour you a bigger glass to steady your hand. It's shaking. So it gives you a feeling of an anxious vertigo. People are not acting right. They're hearing things even though they're being told that everything's okay. The old captain tells his visitor on a dark and stormy night, of course, how he inadvertently gave a friend the idea of killing his wife, a miserable woman who had lost two teeth from her lower jaw, by pouring lead in her ear. Years later, he inherits the man's house along with a skull that he suspects may have a grudge out for him. After all, when he shakes it, there's a rattling sound like a kernel of lead is trapped inside and those teeth look sharp enough to draw blood. <clears throat> Our eccentric sea dog protagonist leads us through a story of bitterness, deceit, and rage as a storm literally rages outside, and the fire snaps before him and his curiously quiet guest. The two men spend the tempestuous night drinking heavily and unraveling the story of the host's wife's disappearance, the discovery of a skull which had been buried outside, and the bizarre events surrounding its restoration to the house. The lights are snuffed by the crashing storm, and the men find themselves terrorized by a shrieking skull with a long repressed bloodlust. His friend flees the brutal lover's quarrel and ends the story with a newspaper clipping which describes how the captain was later found with his throat torn out. The tooth marks medical men queasily confirm belong to a human being with two teeth missing from the lower jaw.
Ooh. How can you use this in the game? Um, you can give the Flame Skull a tragic backstory, which you then have to unravel in order to either put the skull to rest or satisfy the skull's sense of vengeance. If you can put something in front of it that it to make its master vulnerable to it would actually allow it to circumvent its master's control and take vengeance. Or maybe also another thing you could do is instead of it being an artifact belonging to somebody who owns a dungeon and uses it to guard things, maybe it just exists in an eccentric rich person's house. Still inviting you to mystery, still inviting you to unravel a murder mystery, maybe. We now return to the originally scheduled podcast. Thank you for this uh, important digression. And in case I didn't get into it last time, just to make sure I cover it, Death's Head as a symbol first showed up. Uh, you could see it in graves and mausoleum de- decorations, and it just had more to do with like a symbol of death. So you're there at a grave and you're looking at like, oh, of course, this is death that I'm facing. It's um, plain that comes for us all. This is just something that we recognize. And then in the military, it first came up in the 1700s in a Prussian regiment fighting against Napoleon. Um, And that symbol kind of persisted in various German units as the years went on. And then most famously as the uh, the Nazi SS symbol, and which makes them even scarier because they have all this this crazy conspiracy lore about them about how they were like up to all of this um, like occult research and their insignias and their methods and their their symbolism is just full of like weird occult uh, meanings. So taking uh, Having a death's head is not just a light um, symbol to connect them. Like it, it at once connects them to their like older Prussian history, but it also makes them like, I think they really meant it. And that is a power that people today are really like lusting after. Yeah. It's just like power and the power of death specifically, the authority to mete out death, no matter who you are. So you see, that's why it like, a lot of blacked out trucks and uh some really anti-social looking people <laughs> having punisher logos because now it's a more it's like a disney product basically yeah so it's not weird to have it even though it is totally weird it is really weird and the weirdest part is specifically and the, like the essay that you mentioned before it touches on this too um but like a lot of the people um like with blacked out trucks and all this like tactical nonsense and Punisher heads on this stuff are like specifically the people Punisher, the character like would have like despised. Yeah. Yeah. I found another great resource on the Punisher um, on a website called truth out, which I don't know anything else about. So if they turn out to be horrible people, I'm very sorry, but this essay um, on the Punisher throughout history is in particular related to how the state has used the Punisher, or uh, actually, sorry, how the Punisher has reflected the values of whatever time in whatever military happenings were going on, whatever um, conflicts were happening. So originally, the Punisher was a foil to more conventional comic heroes. Like they, they all, they both wanted justice. Spider-Man is like one of the the major uh, foils that they would put the Punisher up against. Yeah. They would both want justice. 
but the Punisher wanted it immediately on his terms and permanently. So there was no like Batman locking up every villain in Arkham, the rotating, uh, like rotating door at Arkham Asylum. Yeah. <laughs> he was just put, he wanted to put them in the ground and be done with it. And at the time, this was like in the 60s, it was too spicy to have his own comic and be his own hero because that wasn't like the way things were done. But then in the Reagan years and the war on drugs, suddenly the Punisher, most of the comics was about him going down to South America and like shooting up cartels and killing lots of South American people. And even though in, in real life, the CIA was heavily involved in a lot of that shit. Yeah. Uh, none of the Punisher comics would go that far. They always ended with like some South American drug lord. Part of the propaganda of that was that it was like time to get tough. We can't just, we can't, we, we can't obey all these rules that stop us from fighting the war on drugs. We got to be a cowboy. We got to bend them. We got to do the right thing no matter what it takes. And you see this in like endless parade of uh, like kind of right wing action films where the loose cannon gets the job done, right? Yeah. These are all just regular old death's heads. These aren't flaming skulls. What makes it a flaming skull, the Ghost Rider image is like you're imbued with a, a spirit or a passion or an external source of that flame, which turns it into a more supernatural or perhaps spiritual symbol. But it doesn't have to, it's not specific. It just means I think people that like the symbol like the idea of being full of something, of a conviction, you know? Yeah. The uh the the necromancer that created it. Yeah, like there's so much so much magical energy in here. It's like it's 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 coming out. It's on fire, you know. It's not staying inside. Shooting out of its eyes. Yeah. But it's a nefarious energy. It's not good. Like the the skull doesn't like it necessarily and it's not it's yeah. not its own power it's yeah it's it's green fire that's never good yeah <laughs> something's really going wrong if fire's green you don't want that 
I have uh, I found a website called Skull Action, which seems to be a <laughs> website dedicated to uh, like skull merchandise, which is a market I didn't think you could corner. And I'm not sure they have, but they're definitely trying. I bet they do a lot of business to like bikers and uh, like roadside jewelry sellers on Queen Street or whatever. But they also have a component in it called Skull Action Magazine. Skull Action Magazine. Which is just a blog, but it's a hell of a title. Yeah, it really is. Whoa. Yeah. I'm gonna read I'm gonna read a very a small excerpt from it, but it's written by someone who I don't think speaks English as their first language. And it's a more of a uh, maybe a first hand encounter about what a flaming skull means to someone who writes for Skull Action magazine. Flaming skulls show power and bravery. Skull tattoos are in different forms these days. This tattoo configuration frequently represents power and bravery. Skull image is there in practically every religion globally, and it frightened individuals from old times. Bullet point. Their bones are a conventional private seal, so skull tattoo designs frequently mean opportunity. I don't really fully know what that means, but uh, that kind of goes along with like the idea of pirates. I don't know. Yeah. You know? Uh, their proprietors need to uncover the concept that they don't have regard for social standards. So having a skull, a flaming skull tattoo means you don't give a shit about social standards, which is another rule-breaking aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important that necromancy is like, and, and the undead are, are neutral evil. They're just simply the power of undeath, but like not committed to any particular cause necessarily only the cause of the individual yeah yeah and uh, the third bullet point here is they show that opportunity is the most significant incentive for them that one just sounds like a fortune cookie i don't really know what that means opportunity is the most significant incentive opportunity Um, yeah yeah i don't know about that one And then uh, a final word here. There are many types of skull tattoo designs. Flaming one is frequently made to underscore the strong will of the proprietor. It is quite possibly the most famous skull tattoo among extremes and individuals enamored with hazards. (laughs) (laughs) So if you love hazards, you're probably a skull tattoo guy. Yeah, that tracks. I, I'm I'm trying to come up with a AFI a fire inside joke, but I, I, <laughs> I I'm not getting anything. I'm trying to remember some of the any of their songs, and I can't. If, even if you had made one, I would be it would be totally lost on me. Yeah. On top of the examples I gave, I could think of two uh, famous ones, or at least uh, nerd famous in Warhammer. The, the margins of all the books and the, in the background of every image, at least for the Imperium, uh, there are servo skulls. Yeah. Which are, yeah, I knew you'd like it. So they are flying skull robots that they use as like automatic cameras or light sources, can computers sometimes. And their presence, their ubiquity, kind of emphasizes death as an all-consuming element in so much so that it's just used as a tool as like a vital tool of the of the entire organization and having flying skulls everywhere as a matter of course tells you that death is a necessary element of the day-to-day function of the empire yeah 
And the reason that they do that instead of just make regular drones too is because uh, they are they don't trust artificial intelligence because uh, like thousands of years ago they had a robot uprising that nearly destroyed the society. So instead, um, they uh, and this is like if you commit a crime in the Imperium, you your sentence is like you can become like sentenced to be a servo skull now and so they like it's it's a living brain inside of the skull that they use in lieu of uh computer chips to and they it's it's a cyborg basically is is what it is so there's, yeah. that's it's a person that's still alive but they don't have free will anymore because their brain is used as the raw material to program a drone and they need more uh, is the thing right yeah like, and they need more and they also threat. Even darker are the the cherubim, and so they uh, just uh, make babies into the same thing as servo skulls, but they give them wings through genetic mutation so that they look like little angel babies, but they're also uh, weird little cyborg automatons. Well, I'm sure there's a good reason for that. <laughs> what else are you going to do? With all these babies. If you can make robot baby servants. I, I would not want a baby serving me. Are you kidding me? Not yet. I'll take a servo skull, thank you. Like, I appreciate the offer, but yeah, can we get an adult in the room, please? And then finally, also, uh, Terminator, which doesn't really have flying skulls. I think there might be one shot of, like, a Terminator head flying towards the camera. I might be thinking of a video game or something. I just feel like there's a flying robot skull that happens at some point. But again, it's the ubiquity of... and then. Of, of all the skulls like in the in the future presented in terminator it's just like lousy with skulls yeah yeah <laughs> robot skulls and human yeah mostly skulls i think there's um there's some flying on fire skulls in uh doom in the doom games that you have to shoot oh for sure there's got to be i honestly i would be surprised if there is like a uh you know rpg out there that doesn't have a flaming skull monster somewhere in it you know yeah, i guess this is a perfect embodiment of like it's neutral great. evil it's just a bad thing it is death but not only is it death it's possessed by something the flood the fire says that this is not an accidental flying skull yeah it's and I feel like purpose. it's that skull that's on fire, like taps into something. This might be particular to like parts of the world where there's a lot of like influenced by Abrahamic religions, but like a flaming skull is like that's that's like dying and going to hell, you know, in like one visual neat little metaphor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Suffering, dying and suffering, yeah. one way or another, hell or even just the state of being undead yeah i'm gonna leave off with uh the story i can only find one kind of fairy tale lore example of fiery skulls and it is a russian fairy tale and it, it kind of neatly shows you the idea that skulls flaming skulls as a symbol of mastery of death doesn't have to be negative necessarily and they are more mercenary they they serve or hinder so this is called vasilisa the beautiful it's a russian fairy tale collected by alexander afanasyev sorry alexander afanasyev and william ralston Shedin ralston in russian in russian <laughs> i'm going to re-record this all by myself in russian fairy tales a choice collection 
of Muscovite folklore. So Vasilisa is the youngest. She's the stepdaughter, classic Cinderella stuff. Her stepmother and stepsisters set her tasks she manages with her mother's blessing and the doll her dead mother gave her. When she comes of age, all the young men want to marry her rather than the older stepsisters, which the stepmother forbids. So very similar to, to uh, God damn it, Cinderella. Finally, having sent her into the woods many times in hopes that Baba Yaga would eat her, she has her sent directly to the witch to get fire after they had deliberately quenched all their fires. She finds Baba Yaga in a hut set on chicken legs surrounded by skulls on posts that glow at night. Baba Yaga sets her impossible tasks, but when she finds out the Vasilisa succeeds with the help of her mother's blessing, she evicts her, giving her a lantern made from a skull for fire because no one with a blessing can stay with Baba Yaga. When she returned, she found that the stepmother and stepsisters had been unable to light a fire the whole time she was gone. The witch's skull quickly sets the entire house on fire and burns it to the ground with the stepmother and stepsisters inside. Vasilisa found shelter with an old woman and began to spin flax and weave the thread. When the old woman brought it to the market, she brought it to the czar, who could not find seamstresses capable of sewing it, it was brought back to Vasilisa, who could. Whereupon the Tsar insisted on seeing her, fell in love, and married her. So a happy ending. She, I guess the moral is, if you have the blessing of your, of your family, of your true family, you can get away with anything. <laughs> and the Flaming Skull, like, visits vengeance on Vasilisa's enemies after she's, like, mastered it from Baba Yaga. Maybe not mastered it, but has just like kind of judoed it. She's jujitsued the power of death that Baba Yaga has and has redirected it onto her uh, her stepmother and stepsisters. So there's an example of flame skulls being used as truly neutral evil creatures. And that's all I got. I don't know, man. Yeah. There's a lot. Heads, flying heads. I think this might be the last flying head type thing. I think so yeah there might be another one um there is i don't know we don't really have time to get into it but like we go back to our demi lich episode also and compare and contrast yeah listen to them at the same time yeah one in one year the other in the other year and just see 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 what becomes of you at the end of that <laughs> see how you feel yeah that okay uh i don't have it in front of me what's next do you know what's next oh let me uh here. I'm trying to load it, but it's taking a long time on my computer. Flame skull. Oh man, is it? It's either. I think oh, it's, it's flesh golem, isn't it? Oh, is it the flump? It's either the flesh golem or the flump. I think flesh golem might be category of golem. Flesh golem is under golem. <laughs> okay, good. So it's flump. Oh, nice. Yeah, Wes loves a flump. I love a good flump. So until then, Wes. Yeah. <laughs> Let's monsters away. Thank you.